by the time you hear the next pop, the funk shall be within you. Good everybody, welcome to episode number 20 of the Forbidden Technique podcast, which is apparently the magical number that means that we will do this podcast literally forever, so that's cool, look forward to, to many years of the Forbidden Technique podcast, and today we're um, mostly just going to be looking back at Vent Just Gone, this weekend UFC 273, at the end we're going to give a quick mention to this weekend's card headlined by of Vicente, Luke, and Bilal Mohammed, but we're basically going to be talking just about the main event because um, I wouldn't say that the card is bad, but I wouldn't say that there's a tremendous amount to go into in any kind of analytical depth. So I'm just going to get right into UFC 273 in the main event. Alexander Volkanovsky uh, defends his featherweight championship again against the Korean Zombie. And... Uh, uh, made it look like even more of a mismatch than it was supposed to be on paper. Uh, of course, there was a lot of context to Korean Zombie coming in to a title shot at this point in his career. But, you know, most people were, were happy to see him uh, get one last shot, particularly given the context and just where the division was at at this point. Um, but Volkanovski showed just uh, the different, the absolute gulf that there is between the top two fighters of Featherweight and the rest of Featherweight. Because Korean Zombie is still a good fighter who wins plenty of fights in the top 10 at featherweight. And Volk just made him look like he didn't belong there. Um, Karth, what do you think were the keys to uh, Volk's performance just being so completely dominant in this victory? Uh, well, a lot of what we laid out in the pre-fight, but he added some other things. Uh, like, his feints looked really nice. And, you know, of course, he enjoyed a speed advantage. But the way that he played off of it was kind of the best he's ever looked, I think. His shot selection looked fantastic. He was doing really nice, long straights at the end of combinations. He he was throwing combinations that just made sense in the way they chained together, especially the way that uh, Korean Zombie defends strikes, being like kind of rote the way it is. So, I, oh, the leg kicks, of course. He was off-balancing Korean Zombie pretty much constantly, and Zombie really couldn't get his footing for any meaningful period of time. His ring craft looked great. Like, really everything you can compliment about a performance, Volkanovski did well. He, he didn't really make any errors. He It was just kind of like a fantastic performance by the most consistent guy at the top for championship level, championship level right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, this fight was essentially what uh, everyone who does fight analysis was expecting it to be. It was a guy in Chan Sung Jung who stays in range and waits for counter opportunities fighting a guy in Alexander Volkanovsky who um, controls range and creates counter opportunities. And like, like we said, just constantly uh, having the initiative on every exchange um, by just constantly keeping a, the Korean zombie uh, guessing with his feints. He was just beating the zombie to every single punch. Yeah, and the only times that... Uh, zombie really landed significant offense was him doing something just very aggressively and it, it just working by the nature of that's 
you know, that's kind of how punching someone works. If you just throw a punch real hard, you might land. Doesn't matter how good someone is defensively. And even in most of the exchanges where Zombie was landing, he was getting hit back harder. Yeah. Like, there's a point where Volk lands, like, probably the best sequence of the fight, in my opinion, I think in the second round. And then Zombie just lands like a kind of clipping left hook at the end of it while Volk's reset, which, you know, happens to the best of us. Yeah. And, um... I'm just glad the fight got stopped when it did. Uh, it, it was looking like a Jung's corner maybe could have taken him out of there after the third round when he'd just been dropped multiple times and it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to get anything done. I don't really expect a corner to stop a fight when it's like the guy's... You know, I don't expect corners to stop fights in MMA full stop, particularly not when it's the guy's last opportunity at a title. Um... But, you know, he, he he at least didn't have to, like, keep getting dropped and, you know, have more big moments for Herb Dean to have seen enough in the fourth round. But, um, I mean, what a performance from Volkanovsky. In some ways, it was a matchup designed to make him look good. But, I mean, I mean, what a showcase for everything that makes him such a great fighter and uh, really solidified a solid case for, for being the pound-for-pound pound number one fighter in the sport today. I don't know where he really goes from here. It seems like you have to make a third fight with Holloway just because it's such, it just seems like such an important high-level rivalry in the sport that doesn't feel like it's entirely wrapped up. And just there's a bunch of guys who would coming off of good wins or on a nice little streak in the division but don't really seem to be in, you know, standing out as having a case for, for being the next one for a title. So it kind of seems like some of those guys are still going to have to fight each other to figure it out. And, um, I mean, Korean Zombie, in his post-fight interview, uh, he talked about retirement. He said that he knew this was his last shot at the title, so I don't know what he's fighting for at this point, but if this is the last time we ever see him, then and thank you to the Korean Zombie for an amazing career. Yeah, he was probably, like, one of the coolest action fighters that's ever been in MMA, so always got to appreciate him. Absolutely should be a UFC Hall of Famer. And then in the co-main event, Holy shit, Aljamain Sterling bought the funk, and if he gives you the funk, you're going to take it. There's been a lot of talk about the scoring of this fight. I kind of don't want to get too much into that, because it's boring, and who cares? Um, I will say, though, I do think this is a reasonably clean decision win for Aljamain Sterling. And if you think that Peter Yan really clearly won that first round... Just go, go back and watch it. Count how many strikes he lands clean. And if you and if you think that, that that's enough to say that there's no way he could have lost that round, then I just I, I, I just don't know what to say. And, you know, he lost this fight much in the way that I've been saying he's going to lose a fight eventually. For someone who's a slow starter and builds into fights to take over late, eventually you're going to take over too late. You know, Yan, he's a great fighter and he's a fighter who... Given an in, infinite amount of time, I think would figure out basically any opponent and eventually finish them. Um, but he doesn't have an infinite amount of time. He has 25 minutes, and um, Aljamain Sterling knew that he had to win 15 of those and then not get killed for the last 10. So I asked a friend of the show and guy who knows everything about wrestling, Ed Gallo, of if he noticed any specific technical details that allowed Aljamain Sterling to finish takedowns where he struggled to in the first fight. Um, he was just like, he just, he shot singles. 
he he got to the legs in open space, which he didn't do in the first fight. He, it was all like high doubles up against the cage that were just getting him, just getting stuffed and getting him clinched up. It definitely attests to Aljamain Sterling's quality as a grappler that he landed two of 22 takedowns in this fight and basically had uh, back control for two entire rounds. <laughs> yeah, just I, th- I thought a really smart performance from Aljamain Sterling, a, a really intelligent game plan. You know, he didn't set a pace that he couldn't maintain early because he realized he didn't need it to against someone who isn't going to himself set a high pace from the first round. Uh, we, we all kind of thought that in this rematch, uh, Yan wasn't going to need the slow start that he normally has because he was going to be just so much more dialed into Sterling, ha- having already spent four rounds fighting him. Um, but apparently this is just who Yan is as a fighter. And even if he's swinging like a maniac, trying to take someone's head off that he really wants to just kill... Um, he just he just doesn't put out the numbers in the first round. So I don't know, Christian. What do you think? Yan looked not great, but he definitely didn't look bad or like it. Like it didn't look like anything was wrong with him, aside from like he didn't have as good of corner adjustments as he normally does. But I think the first three rounds or first two rounds would have gone basically the same no matter what. I think in the third he probably could have done with some like better in-fight decision-making that isn't even really independent. Uh, that's pretty independent of his corner because in the fourth and fifth round, when Aljo was, you know, definitely faded and not really like being as aggressive, trying to win. Cause he was pretty confident. He won the first three. Then I, like he was just marching into pretty nice mechanical combinations. Like he, he covered a lot of ground with shifting uppercuts uh, his straights look nice. Like his punching is always going to look very aesthetic, and it's going to land clean. But if it wasn't for Aljo reacting so visibly, like strangely, like he would, he'd kind of cower away and run if he got hit on the chin even a little bit. And he wasn't hurt. He was just that was his way of avoiding the punches. And Yen didn't really capitalize on that in ways that he has in other fights before. I think, and he was willing to do things like you know, entertain Aljo in the grappling in the fourth and fifth seemed like a bit of an ego thing. Uh, and, and he, he didn't just like stand up and start punching. He would be like, Oh, I got to try and take his back now, even though there was no way he was going to finish choke. So I thought it, it had a lot of weird aspects to Yan's performance, but I think Aljo's looking so good undercuts the fact that Yan maybe had a little bit of an issue. Like it's the highest level of sport and any little incremental change matters. So the fact that Yan didn't have his corner, you know, it, it definitely affected the fight, but he, I think Aljo would have put on a fantastic performance regardless. Yeah. And I do think some of those slightly questionable decisions that Yan made throughout, like particularly later in the fight were just brought on by the performance that Sterling had put on by just putting Yan in a state of desperation that he isn't normally in because he never feels like he's down. He's always trying to work towards a finish, but he's also normally like pretty clearly beating the guy's ass and winning the rounds en route to doing it, which is why I think he probably actually entertained the grappling this time, was that he he couldn't just be like, oh, well, I'll just stand up and land low kicks while Sterling sits to guard, because he was like, fuck, I need to get a finish because I'm behind. And he was just like, you know, pursuing it in any way that he could, however the fight was going. And Sterling just also just did a great job of, you know, even though he shot absolutely shitloads of takedowns that 
he was barely able to complete after uh, the third round. It was just constantly breaking Jan's rhythm and putting him in a state of defense and not allowing him to fight his fight. Yeah, I'm 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 really happy for Aljamain Sterling to to get this one back. It was a really tough position that he that he was put in and it was really hard to see him coming away with a win for, from this one. And you know, some people are always going to ha- are always going to hate him for the last fight. But <laughs> fuck those guys. For the people thinking that he was like trying to get a legally need to get a to get out of the first fight, he was like clearly making specific efforts not to get struck illegally whenever they ended up in those positions when he was getting sprawled out on his takedown attempts in this fight. And then uh, Aljamain Sterling called out TJ Dillashaw. Looks like they're probably going to go with that next. That's that's a really fantastic matchup. I don't know that anyone else is really like ready to go in the title picture at Bantamweight right now, so it makes sense. Uh, Yan called for an immediate rematch. And um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, wouldn't have even had to fight the guy a second time if you hadn't illegally knocked him out in the first fight. So maybe like, I don't know, maybe win another fight first. Yeah, I think they're probably going to do like maybe Yan Aldo again. I I don't don't know why, but I, I feel like that's a good one. I've seen other people say that one would be good as well. I, I think that'd be fun. I think Yan could fight the winner of like Rob Font versus Cheeto Vera. That could be cool. You know, he's pretty much fought all of the guys in the top five, apart from TJ Dillashaw, who it looks like is going to be in line for the next title shot. And then uh, just another fight that really played out. Contrary to most people's expectations and the kind of prevailing narratives around the fight, it's always interesting that, like, you know, sometimes you look at a card on paper and all of the fights kind of just seem like foregone conclusions. All three of us pretty much had unanimous picks on the main card last week. But, you know, MMA's weird and there's always going to be some crazy shit happens that nobody really sees coming. And, I I mean, this what I really enjoyed about this fight was just uh, I feel like I... Like, kind of get who Kamzat Shemaev is a little bit more now. We saw him get some pushback, and we have some idea of his ceiling, which is still very high. It's always difficult if a fighter comes in and is just winning as dominantly as Shemaev was in his first four fights, just absolutely running through people. People are going to look at that and, and either be like, well, you know, he's covering up for something, he's going to get exposed at some point, or... People are just going to be like, well, he's completely unbeatable. He's never going to lose. And, you know, it's, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Like, Chemayev was putting on very good performances against absolute stylistic layups. And those two things at play, you know, gave him that really dominant run. Oh, but Gilbert Burns gave him a fucking run for his money, man. Oh, what do you think about this fight, Christian? I remember I thought that Gilbert Burns would be like a really tough matchup for Chemayev a while ago. And then I was like, eh, no, what? He, he knocked out uh, Mearshart. I, I think because uh, people were really high on him immediately from his initial two fights. So there was people thinking that, oh, give him like Gilbert Burns, give him Colby just for his, his like third fight in the UFC. But he ended up having a few more. So I, I initially thought that Gilbert Burns would be hard for him. And then I had gone back on that after seeing more Gilbert Burns performances and a few kind of misleading Kamaya performances. Like the Mearshart fight, for example, kind of made me think that Kamayev is more of a speed to, like he more uses his speed to knock people out than his power and also at middleweight he just seems to hit harder because he, he definitely still hits hard at welterweight but he's not the type of guy that's just going to be sparking people out with single shots like he has enough power to hurt 
Burns with the southpaw jab, but that's just a way that Gilbert Burns gets knocked down. Like it happened in the Usman fight as well. Both good hitters, but it's it's a reliable tactic to bother Burns. And I I really liked the performance by Burns. He he landed nice counters. He didn't overexert himself too much. He he needed to do more to be able to steal the win. But it was a close fight. Like he he fought his heart out, and even when both guys got tired, they fought back well the entire time. Yeah. So like, I think we learned about Hamzat Chimaev that if he can't just smush people on the ground, you know, he will just concede to a striking battle because he maybe just like loves to bang too much for his own good. But we saw he's got a chin, and he can fight through adversity, and he can fight when tired, and he'll keep the pressure on. And he just has a few good, good, consistent tools that he can stick to. Um, but it was also cool that like Burns' jiu-jitsu kind of barely even came into play in this fight. That he was just he was just in like scrambling wrestling mode the whole time and had a good bit of success. So that does definitely like you know you know it, it, it gives some context to Chimaev moving forward and what matchups are going to be harder for him, particularly if he is forced to move up to middleweight at any point. Which, like you say, I think while he wouldn't be the monstrous size bully at middleweight that he's able to be at welterweight, he's still like strong and physically imposing, and um, would be able to leverage more of a speed edge at middleweight. I mean, but you saw when Gilbert Burns tried to take down Shamayev, he he couldn't move his hips. Yeah, I don't know. They might just give Shamayev the next title shot off of this. I'd like to see him take another fight and. Probably Usman fight the the winner of this weekend's main event, but I don't know what they're gonna do. Yeah, I have a sneaking suspicion they're gonna try and give Kamaev like a Kiesa type matchup where it's a grappler, but it's someone that he probably should fuck up on the ground that he can also outstrike. They might give him Colby, depending on how Colby's next fight shakes out. I would like to see him fight Colby Covington. I would as well. And as for Burns, you know, he just continues to be the heroic Brazilian guy who actually takes fights at welterweight while everyone just uh, refuses to fight anyone below them and holds on to a ranking. He's like, oh, I'll just fight people. That's cool. I, I kind of hope they give Burns a like, decent step back so he can get a finish because he's had some rough fights his last few. He certainly has. But, um, oh, you know who he should fight? Sean Brady. Oh, that'd be good. Mm-hmm. It would teach us a lot about Sean Brady too. That's like a, a good place for each guy to fight. Then, um. Mackenzie Dern uh, shocked all of us. Again, we were all unanimous for Tisha Torres by decision um, just because she's like so much more consistent and a much more well-schooled striker and is like way faster and is just like a competent enough grappler that we were like reasonably confident that she wasn't going to get submitted by Mackenzie Dern. Um, But Mackenzie Dern just like being super aggressive you know, just constantly having the initiative and attacking submissions whenever they were in grappling positions, even though that it meant that um, despite uh, Joe Rogan losing his fucking mind whenever Mackenzie Dern did anything, uh, Tisha Torres was like not in danger of being submitted in this fight, but she was just, you know, losing the round, being defensive in those situations. And uh, of course, got hurt in the first round. Uh, But it was a really fun fight. Yeah, I I don't really have an issue with the scoring. I I had it for Dern. But I do understand the argument for scoring it for Tisha. But, you know, tactically, this fight didn't have that much to say for, for Dern or why Dern is good. 
But I do think it's really important that she seems to be like coming along in the striking. Not even in the way that she's able to like land punches, because you know, it's it's cool that she hurt Tisha, but her follow-ups on that still weren't great. You know, it, it was just impressive to see her get spun around in out positions super hard and still be able to like maintain her stance or re-attain her stance. Because it's very common for someone at that stage to just never push past what we've been seeing in her previous fights where she'll just fall over if you whip her around real hard. But she's she's like coming along in, in her footwork and her ability to keep her stance and her ability to put punches together while moving forward. Her game is like still evolving, which is really nice to see. Yeah, I think Perillo's doing a pretty good job with Mackenzie Dern. She looks. A, she just looks a lot more eager about pushing her win condition in this fight. <clears throat> she had some early success against Marina Rodriguez, and then just kind of like seemed to lose interest in the fight a little bit when the things weren't working for her. But here she just she just kind of kept to it, and she just kind of kept moving forward, being being aggressive and trying to take grappling opportunities wherever she could. Whereas sometimes she will just kind of vibe too much in a weird striking match that she'll. She'll just kind of calmly lose. Uh, so it's good to see. Yeah, and Tisha looked pretty good as well, which adds to, you know, Dern's performance, regardless of whether you scored it for her. Yeah, I mean, she was kind of like outmaneuvering the shit out of Mackenzie Dern and tooling her up for like good portions of this fight. She just, uh, you know, gave up a couple of big moments of damage on the feet. And uh, yeah, like I said, sp- spent a long time just defending submissions. Yeah, it was striker versus grappler matchup going into it and it played out like that pretty well most of it but you know Mackenzie Dern is definitely not like she's too powerful and large to not be able to be a bit of a threat on the feet and she hits hard so Tisha Torres just had to like mind herself and just like be very comfortable in ranges that she's normally able to just kind of fuck people up and not really worry about a counter um, Mark Madsen fought Vince Michelle I hated this fight Do you have anything to say about it? I liked the fight a little bit, but not for any tactical reasons that are I'm able to explain. I just thought it was funny that Vince Pichel called his opponent a motherfucker. That was cool. It was funny that he was talking shit and he was like, yeah, I'm going to go fuck this guy up and then got taken down and then lost and got really mad about it. Oh, it was really funny that Vince Pichel like out wrestled Mark Madsen. Oh, and I thought that Vince Michelle won. I thought this was a robbery. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to let my bias show through. Uh, Ian Gary beat Darian Weeks. I know who cares. Fluffy Hernandez beat the shit out of the guy. Uh, Raquel Pennington put Aspen Ladd in a box. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, Pennington, even at one point, was body shotting Aspen Ladd enough to get Aspen Ladd to throw a body shot back, and it looked pretty decent. So Raquel Bennington is like the most fun fighter at the top of Bantamweight, I think, by like a good margin. She has bangers and she only clinches if you make her. You can't blame her for that Holly Holm fight, like either of them. Definitely not. And her boxing has looked so much cleaner in recent years, or like not even years, like just the last year and a half or so. It's nice to see someone improving still at this uh, stage of their career because she's not old, but you know, normally you'd expect someone that's been in the UFC as long as she has to stop improving. Yeah, and it was kind of target practice against Aspen Lad, but uh, at least Aspen Lad 
you know, looked more like she actually wanted to be in a fight than she did against Norma Dumont. Yeah, Aspen Ladd not uh, waiting three rounds to throw a single attempted strike definitely helped her in this fight. Uh, Mickey Gall is fucking died. Yep. Oh, fuck. Alexia Lining versus Jared Vanderer. Uh, we, we didn't really talk about this last week because Alexia Lining has just I've really been struggling to make it to his scheduled fights recently. But oh my God, what a fucking masterclass. There was a moment, you know, we, we were all uh, in the voice chat watching this card together and Alexia Linek pulls Jared Vanderer down into his half guard and while well, coming up on a single leg, Jared Vanderer takes Alexia Linek's back. And while Linek had his back taken, Christian, you were like, oh... Vandera is in trouble, and everyone was laughing, and you were, and you were like, "No, no, dude, I'm, I'm serious." And oh my god, what, what, what played out next was just, it was, it was, it was incredible. Yeah, Olenek, Olenek straight up put himself in a triangle from the back take position. He just like elevated the leg and turned in, and then Vandera was like, "Okay, I'll take a triangle." And then you're not gonna fucking triangle Alexei Olenek, you know? Like he's, he's fine. So then from the uh, the triangle, he then got top position and then worked his way into getting a scarfold or mother's milk, if you'd like to call it. I believe that's also a way you can uh, describe it. I may be wrong, but scarfold is the technical term. Yeah, though, I, I mean, I'd, I'd really like some someone like Ben Cohn, who knows a whole bunch of stuff about jujitsu, to do a detailed breakdown of this uh, finishing sequence because it was fucking beautiful. Like, after putting himself in the triangle and like regaining uh, top guard. He then uh, ends, ends up taking Vandera's back as uh, he's trying to scramble to his feet. And as Vandera tries to turn out of the back take, uh, Alinek passes to mount, but just threatens the mount to just like effortlessly slide over to side control where uh, he finishes the fight with a scarfold. It was, it was fucking dope. You know, it's, it, it, it was like a couple of weeks ago, the commentary actually thinking that Paul Craig was in trouble off of his back uh, against Nikita Krylov. So these guys, you, you just you don't want to give them a limb. Doesn't matter what position it's from. Yeah, and Alexei Linick is like the funniest variation of that type of fighter, where you just shouldn't grapple with him if you can avoid it, uh, because he like he'll do the silliest submission attempts, and like he'll pull guard just to to like Ezekiel choke you, but he doesn't really have that much of a bottom game for submitting. He'll pull mount to Ezekiel choke you. Yeah, yeah. Like, like he doesn't have that much of a submission game off his back aside from, you know, like he'll Omoplata sweep someone. I've seen that before, which is hilarious to watch. Uh, and then the Ezekiel choke, but he's mostly a top player, but he just starts all of his grappling scenarios from getting on bottom unless someone just falls over. So like seeing Alexei Olenek get his back taken while watching. I was like, yeah, I mean, this is like working towards his win condition though. Like Jared Vandera isn't a good enough grappler to be able to sustain this. Alexi Olenek has submitted like four Jared Vanderas in his UFC career by basically the same fuck shit. Yeah. And I, I genuinely can't remember anyone ever having grappling success against Alexi Olenek apart from like uh, Fabricio Verdum. Yeah, and even then, Olenek was like still getting good position consistently. Yeah, he, he still couldn't submit Olenek when he repeatedly um, w- was uh, doing his like back take to armbar switch up. Okay, then uh, last fight we're going to talk about on the cards: uh, Julio Arce versus Daniel Santos. Um, said last week that 
didn't know who Daniel Santos was, uh, but the uh, debuting fighter coming off of a contender series win, fighting Julio Arce, almost certainly too much too soon. Um, and it just like clearly was. Uh, Daniel Santos, he had some good ideas. He had Charles Oliveira in his corner, which he loved to see. And there was a bunch of the cool uh, Chucky Olives looks in there, but, you know, he's he's not Chucky Olives. And Julio Arce, his ring craft is not infallible, but, you know, if you're not a really, like, disciplined pressure fighter, he'll tool you up off the back foot. And that's what he did. He looked, he looked really good doing it. Yeah, he just kind of did a bunch of step to the side and throw a straight punch and, and then, like, circle out. It, it was very repetitive watching the fight, but I enjoyed it. But, you know, it, it's a testament to how consistent Julio Arce's game is whenever he's, like, having a good performance that pretty much the entire fight just looked the same. Yeah, his kicks looked good. He was doing well taking away Santos's weapons. He's landing nice body shots. Just a nice showcase for Arce. And Santos showed that he clearly has some potential and that this was just a rough fight for, for a debuting fire. So maybe it's too soon for him to be in the UFC. Maybe he needs to do some more development. But um, but if he, if, if, he, if he develops his game a little bit more, he could, he could definitely be a solid addition to the division. Okay, and then so this weekend, uh, we've got a fight night card headlined by a rematch at the top of the welterweight division between... Vicente Luque and Bilal Mohamed. Uh, they fought way back in 2016 when they were still like both clearly uh, decent prospects, but are still definitely developing their games. Ex- had some like neutral kicking exchanges from range, and then uh, Luque uh, nailed Mohamed with a left hook while he was on one leg throwing a kick and knocked him the fuck out. They've both come a long way since then, so it's it's really cool to see these guys getting a rematch at this point in their career where the winner may very well uh, be getting a title shot off of it. So so that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting matchup in the sense that Mohamed has a lot he can do to show that the first fight isn't like the most replicable outcome. Or at the time, it probably was the most replicable outcome. But there, there's just so much that each guy has changed that the fight's definitely going to play out a little differently, even if the result ends with being the same thing. Yeah, and um, it is just a, it, it's a cool matchup because um, Bilal, remember the game plan, Mohammed is a genuinely very adaptable fighter and not in the way that we were talking about like um, like Peter Yan being a really adaptable fighter in the way that he can make a really good adjustments like within the confines of his style in order to make his style work against different matchups. Mohammed is like, he will just straight up fight different matchups in completely different ways and like come in with very uh, clearly thought out uh, preparations for each fighter that, that he fights. You, you know, we talk about like Jorge Masvidal being like a, a really deeply skilled fighter who just like insisted on having a kickboxing match with Stephen Thompson and a grappling match with Damian Meyer. Uh, Bilal Mohamed easily out-wrestled Stephen Thompson and uh, easily sprawl and brawled Damian Meyer against an aggressive counterpuncher like Lyman Good. He'll go on the back foot and deny exchanges with like long range part shots and against like someone who will just move backwards and look for counters like Diego Lima he'll just like come forward and fuck you up against the cage and uh, Vicente Luke just he is the violence idiot at welterweight a pressuring aggressive counterpuncher who uses forward movement and cage cutting to create exchanges where he can land counters where he often is like absolutely fine just getting hit in those exchanges because he has 
an absolutely iron chin and is one of the hardest punchers at welterweight. Um, his main issues have been against pretty much just against people who can consistently out-wrestle him. There really aren't any analogs for Stephen Thompson in the division who are going to be able to like consistently outmaneuver Vicente Luke in a kickboxing match. So this fight, to me, kind of comes down to like, can Mohamed just out-wrestle Vicente Luke and can he outlast him down the stretch? Because uh, Luke also he generally seems to get pretty tired over a three-round fight, you know, because all of his fights are insane wars that are fought, fought at a high pace if he doesn't just finish people in the first round. Blah Mohammed generally seems to be in pretty insane shape and always has great conditioning, always looks fine at the end of three rounds, even when fighting at a high pace. So I don't know. Do you think Mohammed can out-wrestle Luke? Do you think he can do it over five and not get knocked the fuck out at some point? I think he definitely can. His application of skill is so much better than his depth of skill. So, like, being able to see him wrestle Luke would, would be, like, very impressive because he's not a super deep wrestler or a super deep striker, but he he's, like, he works within the confines of that to pull off some game plans that I otherwise would expect him to not be skilled enough to be able to do just because he's, he's just a really good fighter. Like, he just kind of feels for how to fight people correctly and it doesn't get too flustered. And he's shown to be way more, like, he's had better recovery in his recent years since the Luke fight, like, you know, he got dropped by Luke and wasn't put like fully out, but he was pretty fucked up. And then Luke landed a few ground and pound shots that like really sealed the deal. But since then, Luke's or uh, Bilal's chin has looked like really good. He, he got kind of buzzed by Leon a bit, but you know, Leon hits hard. So no real shame in that. He, Again, got dropped by a head kick from Jeff Neal and still got his shit together. Yeah. Like, you know, Fought back well after getting dropped by Lyman Good. You know, he's he's not untouchable, but he's really fucking tough and he's really hard to put out. Yeah, and, and I think that that could serve him well because I do agree that if it goes past the second or third round, the fight gets just worse and worse for Luke. But I think it's very possible that the first two rounds are brutal for Muhammad. Maybe even a 10-8 in there, if not finished, because it is rare that Luke hurts someone who doesn't finish them. So that's something to note is that, you know, Bilal hasn't really been fighting the best finishers that he's been getting hurt by. Yeah, Luke is just more of an ice-cold finisher than Lyman Good or Jeff Neal uh, to, yeah, to add to all that. Leon Edwards, you know, especially. <laughs> yeah. So everyone that's really been affecting Bilal on the feet or like getting close to finishing him aren't as consistent as Luke is because Luke will knock people out just flat because he's so powerful. But and has great timing, but he'll also hurt someone and then, you know, put them against the fence, beat the shit out of them, submit them. Like he has variety in the ways that he can attain a finish and he's very consistent about it. And he, it's probably like the most dangerous finisher in the vision by a good margin. So it's, it's a tough one for Bilal. I definitely think I'm going to pick Luke by second round KO, but Muhammad's got a good chance. Anyone discounting him from this fight is underrating him. Yeah, um, and talk about Mohammed's wrestling. Like, I think his wrestling in a vacuum is maybe maybe the strongest area of his game. I definitely agree. Like, he's actually really solid as a takedown artist. He's just, he's not the most venomous from top, and he is just not a finisher at heart. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's a very workmanlike fighter, and I think he's going to come in with a lot of good ideas. Like, I think he will just 
have a few tools to shut down Luque's up front headlock submission game. I don't think that's really going to be a factor unless Luque you know, badly hurts Mohamed and goes for a club and sub. But yeah, like you say, it seems like a, a very winnable matchup just with much thinner margins for Bilal Mohamed. So yeah, I was also going to pick Vicente Luque by second round knockout. So we're in agreement. Hell yeah. But that means he's definitely going to get out-wrestled for five rounds. Yeah, it's just math. If if we both are like in unison about the rounds that a fight's going to end, then the other guy's going to win in a kind of bland way. So, uh, anything from this card jumping out to you? Caio uh, Baraglio is making, I believe, his UFC debut. He may have had one other fight in the UFC, but uh, he's a pretty cool prospect. I don't know much about his opponent, but I'm sure it'll be a decent fight. And it's it's just like a like a a cool he's he's just cool i don't really know if there's that much depth to it and we'll definitely cover most of these fights i'm sure on the next podcast but yeah this is definitely one where like i'm sure some of these fights are going to be interesting to talk about but you know what what am i going to say about about andre fialio versus miguel baeza it will probably be kind of a banger yeah and with uh, uh uh, Munir Lazez versus uh, Lizio Zaleski no, dos Santos. No, no, no. It, it got changed. Now it's uh, Munir Lazez versus Anglusa. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I apologize. Uh, so so Munir uh, Lazez has a new opponent. That could be interesting. Short notice. Uh, Lazez is pretty cool tactically, but he definitely has some like kind of gaping issues. Well, we haven't seen him since he got uh, Lumpini stadiumed by... Wally Alves. Yeah. Um Myra Bueno Silva's fighting. Always always like her. I, I recognize the opponent, Yanan Wu, but I don't remember her fights. And, and we didn't have much time to do tape for this and just wanted to get one out. Yeah, we did we 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 did we didn't do tape for Yan and Wu. What are you gonna do about it? <laughs> Fight us. No. Uh oh fuck, Huggy but Chris Barnett's fighting. Yeah. Who's he fighting? Who's Martin Boudet? Let me check. Let me check. His last fight was in Contender Series against Lorenzo Hood. Wow, what a name. Badass name. So, always got to watch Chris Barnett fight. Important to note. And then, throughout the card, there's a few fights that I'm sure will turn out to be pretty enjoyable to watch, and we'll cover them next time. But nothing else really sticks out to me. Yeah, I think that'll do for now. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this content and all of the other stuff that the Fight Site puts out, consider supporting them on Patreon, where uh, Pledges $3 gets you access to a huge library of really high-quality analytical fight content. Um, but then just another $2, the $5 pledge gets access to a Discord server uh, where we have... A, awesome community of like-minded fight fans from a bunch of different backgrounds who are always interesting to talk to you can always uh, you can also you can talk to staff ask us questions a lot of us are very active in the chats and um, pretty much uh, every weekend we're hosting uh, fight night watch parties where getting together watching the fights it's always good fun sometimes we'll even do it midweek just just watch some classic fights, some some old boxing, kickboxing, whatever it might be. It's good fun. You should, you should come hang out. This has been the Forbidden Technique Podcast. Uh, you can catch us next week where we're going to be recapping 
a bunch of the stuff from this card, as well as talking about next week's fight night, headlined by a women's strawweight fight between Amanda Lemos and Jessica Andrade. Sounds like a banger to me. Should be good fun. We'll see you then. Peace. Later.